it's usual at this stage <clears throat> to give a resume of the author I'm about to speak to, but really I imagine you all know who the author is, otherwise you wouldn't be here. So instead what I'd like to do is to give uh, so something more personal by way of an introduction. People often ask me how it is that we get such, um, such good authors to outspoken, and I uh, sort of mumble something about writers' festivals and publishers and tie-ins with this or that, because it's not always quite so easy to say. But tonight it's different. Tonight we have Henry Reynolds here, specifically because Annette Hughes, who organized Reality Bites and New Monday, and myself were desperate to have him come up here, and we actually invited him to come and uh, sort him out. And it took us, uh, I'm afraid, a year to get him to come since he brought out his last book. Uh, the reason that I'm so excited was that I first read The Other Side of the Frontier when I was studying um, early Australian history at Macquarie University in the 80s. And as soon as I opened that book, I'd encountered... I felt like I'd encountered someone who was important to what I would describe as the whole project of Australia. Someone who could articulate aspects of our history and whose understanding of that history was essential to something as radical as the development of a mature nation. But I'm not the only person who feels this way. Since we started advertising the event, several people have approached me to say that Henry Reynolds has been an inspiration to them. So. Um, I can't tell you how pleased I am to have you here. Please put your hands together to welcome Henry Reynolds to Mulaney. So, Henry, while you're primarily a historian, you've also written very personally about the effect of Australian history on yourself. And, and in asking that, I'm, I'm thinking, of course, of your book, Why Weren't We Told, in which you recount your own process of discovery of the story of white settlement and the displacement of the original inhabitants. What made you choose to, to write it in that form rather than as a straight history? Well, I needed to explain why it was that I appeared to many people to be rubbishing Australia. I mean, there are many, many people who accepted what I wrote, uh, applauded it, but there were equally a great many people who were very hostile. And uh, that became obvious in the history wars, but uh, it had always been apparent to me. And because I was for many years teaching, uh, you are instantly aware of the reaction of your students. So I felt it was important to, to explain why it was that I took this sort of attitude to Australian history. And the critical point about it was that Margaret and I, uh, having been in, grown up in Tasmania, went to London and then came to North Queensland at a time when uh, it was a, a turbulent and violent place. And we learnt about the relations between Indigenous and settler Australians, not from books, but from seeing it every day in the street. And it was important to explain that, that I, I, didn't, I didn't learn the history and then look outside. We saw this all the time, and Margaret in particular, uh, when I would sit at home and read books, she would be out as an activist. And uh, very, very early, we became very much involved in day-to-day -day, uh, events in and around Townsville. And uh, so we, we learnt a great deal 
both because we, we, we talked to Aboriginal Islander people, we had you know, a lot of friends, and, um, but we also saw you know, there was something, something seriously wrong because this isn't the way I thought Australia was. You know, there, there, was, there, was a, there was a profound uh, mismatch between the, the, the idea that I grew up with of Australia and what we saw in North Queensland in the 1960s. And it was from that that I felt I had to go back and find out why it was that there was such tension and conflict in, in the society. And, and the best way to do this <coughs> uh, was um, a book that was more a memoir. And, of course, that uh, has been the most successful book I wrote because it is, it is uh, easier for people to understand than just reading history. Yes, it's very, it makes it very comprehensible because it, it's like your discovery of what it is that's mm. happened becomes the reader's discovery at the same time rather than just mm. being given a bold statement of, of mm. what it was. Mm -hmm. yep. So what, what, what was happening? You know, what, what had happened when Europeans came here? And I know that's such an enormous question. I, I don't want to detract from, from it, but I, maybe we could narrow it down to how you see the situation at the time of settlement. What, what were the differences between the Aboriginal people who were living here and the white settlers, the Europeans who arrived? Well, the profound, I mean, the, perhaps the single most important fact about the early settlement was the British arrived and did not recognise that the, the, uh, the people whose country it was had any right to the land or any laws or any, uh, you know, any sovereignty. Now, this isn't what the British had done in North America. They had always recognised that the Indians uh, had a form of sovereignty and that the Indians owned the land. Now, there were certainly wars, uh, but much of the transfer of land in North America took place by purchase. Now, the same is true when the British uh, went to New Zealand. They began with a treaty, and that treaty recognised that the Maoris owned the land. Now, in the middle was the settlement of Australia. And in the settlement of Australia, there was no recognition of Aboriginal property rights. So the Aborigines had nothing. They had nothing to negotiate with. There was no need to learn their languages. There was no need to understand their political structure so you could negotiate with them because they had nothing. They had nothing to bring to the negotiating table. Consequently, it was, it was preordained that there would be violence. There was no escaping it because of that original decision, and that was a decision not by the settlers, but by the British imperial government. And in a way, that was something that was very difficult to escape. And we didn't escape it in legal terms until the Mabo case in 1992. Uh, that's the extraordinary thing. It took all of that time uh, to recognise that, yes, of course these people owned and, and cherished and belonged to the land. Um, so in a way, uh, the violence was, as I say, it was, it was, it was preordained. It was, it was there from the very start, and I don't see how it could have been indifferent. Now, the, 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 there is the extraordinary contrast between the settlement of Queensland and the settlement of Western Canada. Now, that is between the Great Lakes and the Rockies. Now, they're both very large areas. 
They were settled at much the same time. Uh, of all peoples in the world, they probably had greatest similarities. They existed under the same law system, the common law. They had the same sort of governments. Now, the settlement of Western Canada took place with no violence at all, almost no violence, done by treaty. And stepping across the prairies, there were all the treaties that were signed. And the Canadian Mounted Police protected the Indians and made sure the treaties were abided by. Now, certainly they lost much of their land. I'm not suggesting that it was, uh, it was a benign process, but it was a non-violent process. Now, compare that with Queensland. Um, you know, it's it's it you know it's much the same area. It's open grassland. It's much hotter than Canada, but um, there were tens of thousands of Aborigines killed in Queensland. So I think the difference is 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 there at the very start, the lack of respect for the indigenous peoples' property and sovereignty. And where I mean, it's interesting that you lay that at the hands of the British rather than as the settlers themselves. Yeah. But do, you, don't, I mean, you don't feel that the settlers themselves have some responsibility for oh, this? Well, of course they do. But the whole process was set in train uh, by those original decisions and by the British not, uh, not deciding. They, they knew things had gone wrong. That's why, I mean, the reason why the Treaty of Waitangi was, uh, was created was they saw what had gone wrong in Australia. And they made tentative moves to resolve that in South Australia. And then finally, just before they literally handed the indigenous people over to the colonists, who they had great, con you know, they, they were very sniffy about the colonists and they blamed the violence on these, these dreadful colonials. But, you know, it, it's, it, it goes back to the original decisions. And the extraordinary thing was that at the very end of that period, within a few years of them literally washing their hands of ind Indigenous Australia, they created the pastoral lease, which said that the pastoralists over the vast areas of Australia only had a licence to pasture animals. They didn't become landowners because there were also Indigenous rights. Now, the extraordinary thing is that it took to 1996 with the Wick case for that to become legally potent. Yeah. But it was, it was placed in the story in 1848. And so you feel that that is part, I mean, you're, because you're, you're kind of dividing up the settlement in some ways to the, the time that takes you up to the mid 1800s, mm. and then w at which time New Zealand is being settled and treaties are being signed. And yet in Australia, in Queensland, that same uh, legal basis was not brought to it. Queensland has the distinction of gaining self-government, uh, you know, as we know from New South Wales in 1859, when two-thirds of Queensland was still, you know, uh, untouched by the Europeans. It was also the part of Australia with the largest population that probably had not been decimated by smallpox. Uh, and you had a government that literally could do as it pleased because the oversight of the British was taken away. Uh, they would write things, oh, these, you know, these Queenslanders, they're treating the natives brutally, but uh, they accepted that once you gave self-government, you had to let the settlers do as they would. And because Queensland was a, a very small population, uh, very poor, 
they desperately wanted to spread out into this vast interior, they created, or they, they in a sense, they um, adopted from New South Wales the, the, the mounted native police. And this was the force that was responsible for so much of the killing. Now, in recent years, um, people, you know, uh, scholars in, in Brisbane, particularly Raymond Evans, who has been working on this all his professional career, has come to the conclusion that no matter how hard they try, they can't reduce the number of Aborigines, in, Aborigines killed violently in Queensland below 50,000. Now, that is enormously larger than, than, than anyone has previously thought. And it totally changes. I mean, you, you've got to use, you know, that that phrase of Yeats: "All change, changed utterly," because this this is a this is a, 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 an incredibly important reality for Australian history. That is, it suggests that more Aborigines were killed fighting in Australia even than the Australians who died in the First World War. Now that is so important. We can't avoid that. Yeah. At one point in Forgotten War, you, you stop to ask a number of questions. And in particular, you ask if the death of so many Aboriginals was the price that needed to be paid to create this highly successful democracy. You say that our difficulty is that we no longer share the armory of ideas that protected Australians from irritating introspection in the late 19th and early 20th century. What were those ideas that the settlers had, that, that Australians, white Australians had, that were so effective at shielding them? Yeah, well, the most important one was the, the, over, the overwhelming importance of the idea of evolution. Now, this was the great scientific achievement of the 19th century, which eventually spread out and pervaded almost every, every sort of endeavour, in, particularly in the social science and the humanities, um, so that people, by the time Queensland was being settled, uh, became convinced that evolution uh, was the overwhelming force explaining society and that uh, the, the races of, of human beings were like the species in the natural world, that they were in ceaseless competition, there was nothing you could do about this, this was just, this was, these were the iron laws of evolution and in that process the Aborigines and other lesser races would die out. And uh, Everyone who had lived for any length of time in, in places like Queensland knew that the local Aborigines, once there were 100 and now there's only 10 and eventually there was only old King Billy. People knew that the, that the population had declined every year um, and, and they were able to convince themselves this was, this was evolution, this was, there was nothing we could really do about it. So it, 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 it gave them that sense of... Uh, knowing it was happening, being able to explain it with scientific laws over which they had no control. And that's why at the end of the 19th century there wasn't even much consideration of the Aborigines when they talked about federation because the assumption was they wouldn't be around much longer. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what happened in many parts of the world. The, the lesser races would die out and the superior races would go on evolving. So what I'm understanding is this, that the white people who settled the Australian mainland believed themselves to be at the forefront of a greater civilization, one which had the right to, to the right of history, as it were, yeah. to take over from the savages. 
In Tasmania, however, though, it was slightly different, wasn't it? Because uh, the whites were on an island and, and the colonial government was sending ever more white men into the place. So the settlers were under orders to take over the land. And, they had, and the settlers had, in fact, nowhere to go. They either had to, to uh, push against the blacks or they were going to push against the authority. Well, Tasmania was settled really before, oh, clearly before evolution had become a dominant idea, you know, the, the dominant idea of the age. It was, it was a generation earlier. So they didn't have that um, easy explanation. But in Tasmania, I think what you have is, is much more a situation of, of conflict where the two sides are much more even than they were 50 years later for all sorts of reasons and where the Aborigines you know, killed almost as many settlers as settlers killed Aborigines. It was, it, was, it was a conflict in a very confined space in a short period of time. And, uh, but the, the intention of the, of the government, the colonial government, was to settle them on an island in Bass Strait. Now, people are inclined to say, oh, yes, they just put them there so they'd die off, but that wasn't the intention. Uh, that was by far the most lavishly um, supplied Aboriginal settlement anywhere in Australia until recent times. They had better medical service than almost all the settlers because they had a resident surgeon. Not that he did any good, of course. Uh, but um, the, the intention was to, to give, them a, give them an alternative home uh, on the Bass Strait Islands. But all of this is, I mean, what I just said there about the kind of more advanced civilization taking from it, it wasn't, it wasn't unanimous. There were people who understood that the Aboriginal people actually owned this land yes. and that they were fighting for it. Yes, exactly. So there must have been some kind of willful blindness going on because these people were quite outspoken about it at different times. There was that man, Buxton, who wrote, yeah. who wrote about these yes, things. Yes, yes, of course. Of course there were people who said that they owned the land and, and it, it was that agitation which led to uh, the Treaty of Waitangi and the settlement in New and the recognition of Maori property rights. But let's... Uh, let's I mean, the, the dominating idea at the time of Tasmania uh, was that uh, the Europeans were those who had the revealed religion. They had Christianity. Now, as I often say to my students, and they say, oh, God, these missionaries are dreadful. And I say to them, look, if you really and genuinely believe that you had the secret of eternal life, that you honestly believed that if you became, if you, if you adopted Christianity and embraced Christ, that you could live forever, wouldn't you become a proselytizer? You know, how, how could you not tell people? If, if, if you, as they did, they genuinely believed that, that, you know, that, that in Christ uh, you were saved. Now, there's no doubt that many people believed that. It wasn't that they were just imposing their civilization. They were giving Christianity and all that it bought but, all, but the, the thing that overwhelmingly the appeal of Christianity up to the first half of the 19th century was the idea that of, of salvation. So they were going to teach these people how to be saved. Well, once they'd taken their land from them and, and, uh, oh, but, and but, pushed but, them but, aside. No, well, but, but George Augustus Robinson, the, George Augustus Robinson in, his, in his 
a famous uh, speech on the death of Manalagena, one of the great uh, Aborigines. And he said, look, now he, he, he is now in heaven. Now he, 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 he will no longer say he wants to go back to his land because he has a much greater land. You know, he, he now is up there with the angels. Oh, extraordinary. That's Robinson, who is actually mm. one of the more sympathetic voices, yeah. voices from this time. But now, it's, it's easy to say, God, what, what a lot of crap that was. But there's no doubt it was genuinely and passionately believed. I mean, this leads me... I've got a, a kind of an unusually long question that I've got here because I, there was an interesting piece in this month's monthly magazine written by Jam Kurtzia. He and a, and a psychoanalyst have been writing letters to each other over the years. And Kurtzia, as part of, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, wrote this passage in, in one of the letters that he'd written to the psychoanalyst. Crudely summarised, the story reigning in Australia today goes something like this. Previous generations of white settlers acted under the sway of the pernicious illusion that because their ancestry was European, they were better than the indigenous Australians and were therefore, therefore justified in subjugating them and taking over their land. However, the story continues, the generations of white Australians who came to maturity after World War II underwent some kind of evolution of consciousness as a result of which they have a better and truer understanding of what has really happened in Australia since 1788. That is, they developed a better and truer history of themselves. In this better and truer history, white Australians today remain the heirs and beneficiaries of a great crime committed by their forebears, the sort of crime which enlightened people, such as themselves, would never themselves commit, but which their forebears, slaves to a false conception of themselves and their role in world history, could commit without crippling moral qualms. The story of historical revision, I'm coming to the end, the story of historical revisionism in Australia is different in scale, but not in kind from the story of post-1945 historical revisionism in Germany. Our not-so-remote ancestors, so the story goes, were fine, courageous, upstanding people who suffered hardship so that their descendants could have a good life, but were slaves at the same time to an illusion. We ourselves have seen through that illusion and thus, in a very specific sense, are better people than they, or at least freer people. So Katsia asked the questions, when a society decides that it does not feel troubled by its past, how can healing even begin? Uh, that's a long question. Yeah. Um, well, I've obviously always been convinced that Australia had to come to terms with its past and the most important part of its past indeed was uh, the way in which the settlement took place and, and the consequences of that. Um, now, I think Australia is a better place for that, but it has to be seen in the much broader context that after the Second World War you had the decolonisation, the collapse of the European empires, the end of the idea of white supremacy, all of these global changes which are so important for Australia. It doesn't just happen in Australia. Uh, if Australia had been totally uh, on its own, it may not have changed. Uh, but, you know, Australia had to come to terms with the fact that it, it need, it, you know, uh, by 1961 the non-Europeans had a majority in the General Assembly of the UN. 
There were more and more nations. You know, the, the, the world was undergoing profound changes. And, and Australia, too, had to come to terms. It had to decolonise itself. Now, it's done that t to some extent, but not completely. Decolonisation only reached the, the, the northern shores of Papua New Guinea. It didn't cross Torres Strait. Uh, you know, the Europeans didn't go home. Um, so uh, the settler societies and, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, all these white settler societies, Israel uh, maybe, uh, where the settlers became the, the vast majority. Um, this is a very different situation, but we have to undergo the process of decolonization. And one of the most important parts of this was losing that idea that somehow there was a hierarchy of races uh, and that we were at the top of the tree. And we're still coming to terms with this and we're still undergoing these profound changes as the, 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 the beginning of the tip of the world in, after 1945 is in a, in a sense becoming more pronounced now. And we have to come to terms with an utterly different world. Now, the relations within Australia are clearly part of those global trends. And I think the, the, the unresolved question in Australia is that about Aboriginal sovereignty. Were the Aboriginal nations, as I think we should call them, were the Aboriginal nations sovereign? Did they have government and laws? In which case, how did they lose that sovereignty? When did it happen? In what way? Uh, and is it possible that in those parts of Australia where there are still large Aboriginal communities you know, using their own laws, do they still have some sovereignty? Now that is a question that is totally unresolved. And we look as though we're less likely to resolve it now than we were 20 years ago. And, and what would that sovereignty look like? Do you have any idea? Were it to be uh, well, let's start at the let's start at the very point of Australian law. Now, Mabo resolved property, not not uh, Mabo and Wick at least, gave a judicial explanation of what had happened and what the situation was now. But no Australian court has come to terms with sovereignty. They say no, we can't deal with that because we are the instruments of the sovereign decision. Therefore, we can't go be behind that. So. The Australian judicial system has got no adequate explanation that if the Aborigines had sovereignty, which they clearly had, how did they lose it? They didn't. There were no treaties. You can lose. You, you know. You can. You can lose up and up until 1945, or with the United Nations Charter, it was legal to cap take sovereignty by force. You could. You could simply conquer, take someone's sovereignty by force, or you could sign a treaty where it was passed over by treaty. Now, neither of these stories are accepted in Australia. There's no treaty, and we don't say we're, we're conquerors. And so fact, it, we just, we it just remains unresolved. In fact, we don't even admit that there was a war, which is the basis we, of this book here. We don't admit there's a war. And the coming, um, the coming referendum on constitutional recognition is not going to recognise the sovereignty. So, actually, that was going to be one of my questions that I was going to bring up was whether there was a very interesting article by Robert Mann about a month ago where he was saying that, that 
Tony Abbott for all the failings that man gives to him believes that he is the one person who will actually be able to bring through a constitutional referendum because he is of the right and he can actually it, it takes someone of the right yeah, to bring well, to bring that to bring such a to, because for, to, in, in order to pass a referendum you don't need 51% you need such a no, large percentage no 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 that's absolutely right that's absolutely right but but they have limited what they're asking the Australian people to do I mean, all they're saying is that the, the, the Indigenous people occupied the continent, but I'm sure that is carefully chosen to have no legal significance. And uh, the committee that was appointed said that as their overriding uh, intention was to have a more united nation. Now, it seems to me this is no more and no less than a new form of assimilation. Uh, that goes back to Paul Hasluck and you know in the 1950s Paul Hasluck and John Howard and, and One Australia Tony Abbott Team Australia Hasluck you know wanted to close the gap you know, he wanted to spend a lot more money on health and education but the purpose of this was to encourage Aboriginal people to disappear into the mainstream Australian society and Hasluck said well they will have some historic memory and they'll be proud of their traditions but essentially as a people as a distinct people they will disappear now this is one of the great challenges of this coming century they're probably at the moment I think the estimate is there are 6,000 distinct peoples in the world and there are only 200 nations so most nations in the world contain an assortment of people with their own cultural traditions and languages, etc., etc. Now, are these small peoples, these small nations of people, going to survive the next century? Uh, are their languages going to survive? Are they going to be absorbed, in, completely absorbed, as has happened throughout, no doubt, throughout history? And by the end of this century, there may only be. 400 nations or 300 um, you know or, or are the nation states going to break up you know Scotland and Catalonia and the Basques and the Kurds are we going to have a, a, a cascading of breaking up of the nations when the United Nations was founded in 1945 there were 47 nations there are now 200 are there going to be 400 600 you know so this whole question of the relations between small nations within big states um, has got to be resolved in Australia. And the question of language is important. All the constitution, is, uh, new changes are going to say that English is the national language of Australia, but that the, the indigenous languages are part of our cultural heritage. No more than that. And that is one of the fundamental questions. Do, are we going to put an enormous commitment into preserving the languages that are currently spoken? Mm. So, you know, the, these, are, these are questions that, that are apparent in Australia, but they are global. There are global problems, mm. global questions. Yeah. So bringing it back to Australia, more specifically though, um, in the second last chapter of this book, you, which is, which is, I think it's called Two, Two Different Wars as mm. the mm. title, mm. you discuss the expedition to Sudan yep. and what was occurring simultaneously in, uh, in nor the north of Australia. Mm. And you make some strong statements about the choices that have been made by the Australian War Memorial mm. um, regarding this. So 
Would you like to tell, tell us what it, what, what it is that the Australian War Memorial have done or, or not done? Well, the Australian War Memorial recognises every single person who served and in particular died in every conflict that Australia has been involved with since the New South Wales expedition to the Sudan in 1885. And the names are up there on the Great Freeze in the Hall of Memory. Sudan is first and go right around. And up at the very start are the, I think, six young men who died of typhoid. Um, two of them in Sudan, I think a couple of them on the way home, and at least one or two in the, uh, in the um, place in Sydney, you know, the quarantine station in yeah. Manly. And they are there as part of, of you know, they are, their names are there in the pantheon, you know, the, the great centre of the Australian nation. And this is the way it's interpreted. Uh, you know, people, generations of children are now told that you've got to go to the War Memorial to understand what it means to be Australian. And Brendan Nelson has said, this is the soul of Australia. So those who died of disease, saw no, saw no combat, uh, who died of disease uh, are there. The people who were fighting for their country in Australia at the same time, probably several hundred of them, are not mentioned at all. This is simply the most egregious example of the way in which the War Memorial refuses to recognise the conflict within Australia or those who died. Uh, you know, the names would not be uh, available in many cases, but in some cases they would. Uh, many of the historians of the War Memorial, Peter Stanley in particular, who was there for many years, uh, desperately tried to get the War Memorial to change its view. Uh, numerous other people, including at the time Bill Dean, the Governor-General, have urged that this be done, and yet the War Memorial was utterly resistant to accepting uh, that conflict took place, even though the, the war historians, the military historians, are now accept this as a, simply as a fact. But the War Memorial is totally resistant, and no one is telling them they've got to do it. Their, their legal advice is that they're perfectly capable to do this, they got legal advice. Uh, and Nelson, when asked about this, and I think he was asked as a result of this book, just said, well, yes, maybe, but it's not going to happen while I'm in charge of the War Memorial. So we have this extraordinary situation of this conflict in Australia, about Australia, about the most important issues in, that you can have, property and sovereignty, the consequences of which are still with us. Uh, but those people who, who died in this conflict simply aren't acceptable in the War Memorial. This is very, very strange. This is very, very strange indeed. When there were people, you know, in the early 19th century who said, and I begin the book with, with a, a, a young man writing in 1830 saying, you know, initially I thought, God, these, we should just exterminate them. But then I, when I thought about it, I realised, hey, these people are patriots. They are fighting for their country against an overwhelming invader. They are doing what we would be expected to do in the similar situation. These people are heroes. Now, why can't we see it that way? Mm. Why can't we see what was apparent to someone in 1830? But it, it seems out of reach. It does. And 
I don't want to detract from that, but I, I do want to point out that you are actually a bit divided in the whole issue of Australian militarism, aren't yeah. you? Because, I mean, yeah. I remember seeing you speak in Byron Bay almost 10 years ago, and mm. it was a, a memorable speech you gave talking about the legacy of Gallipoli mm. and how... Mm -hmm. so. In fact, I, I've got a quote here from your book, or it might be from, um, from Nicholas Clements' book. It's, I can't remember quite where it comes from, but... It, the Premier of Victoria at the time of that um, uh, expedition to Sudan, having announced that uh, when Australia had managed to pull together 770 men and 238 horses to go to the Sudan to, uh, after the fall of Gordon at, uh, at Khartoum, that this expedition had precipitated Australia in one short week from a geographical expression into a nation, mm, that's right. which I thought was just extraordinary. Well, I mean, Brendan Nelson is, 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 is last in a long line of people who have put militarism mm. as at the very centre yeah. of our race, of they our nation's race. They said that in 1885, they said it in 1899 with the Boer War, and they said exactly the same thing in 1914. I mean, the idea wasn't new in 1914. It's just that you had to keep doing it over and over again. We had to keep being reborn um, as a nation. Uh, but yes, I, uh, I've recently looked at the way in which Australia celebrated Federation, particularly on the first day of the new century, the 1st of January 1901. And, you know, I've written much about, you know, the White Australia policy, and in particular I've written about the, you know, the horrors of frontier conflict. But as well as all this, Australia and New Zealand were probably the most successful societies in the world. At the highest per capita income, they had uh, you know be more di better distributed than almost anywhere else. They had almost universal education. They were the most democratic societies in the world. The ones are probably the only place, uh, with a few exceptions, where where labour had already entered into politics. They had very efficient bureaucracies, you know, rule of law, all of this very successful achievements, and yet. What grabs the attention in 1901 is the fact that they were fighting in South Africa and, and fighting in China, or they tried to fight, but they couldn't find anyone to fight because it was all finished by the time they got there in the Boxer Rebellion, and they were terribly sad. They didn't have a chance to beat up the Chinese, but they brought home lots of loot. Um, <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. Um, but, you know, what the glamour of the empire and the glamour of the military swamps what should have been the celebration of enormous political and civic achievements. And that seems to me to be, uh, you know, there were people who said, are we going to celebrate our democracy or are we going to celebrate military because armies aren't democratic institutions, which they're not. Which are we going to celebrate? And, uh, you know, there were those who said, oh, no, of course we're going to, it'll be our democracy and our equality which we'll celebrate, but look at, look at it at the moment. We're going to spend $300 million on celebrating war. And, in fact, we're about to engage in another one. Uh, engage in another one with, 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 with consummate ease. So what do you think, I mean, do you have an opinion on what's happening? Why, why it is that our nation does it? I mean, because we're not the only nation that does it, but it seems to be a particularly Australian trait. Um, well, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I mean, the, the... See, when I was growing up, the idea that Anzac Day was, was running down and, you know, it was losing its, its, its uh, 
authority. It, I mean, I scarcely remember Anzac Day. And, uh, but from the early 90s, there has been a massive public government campaign to celebrate military, and, and, and by that we mean wars overseas. Now, in particular, John Howard did this because John Howard was a, 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 a vehement opponent of what he called the black armband version of history. He took the view, and I, I, can, you know, I can understand this point of view. He said, look, if you tell the students about all of these things, they become ashamed to be Australians. History must make them proud of their nation. That is what it's for. I mean, and this is, this is, but this is said in many countries in the world. I mean, many countries say this. The history that we teach our children must be there to inculcate patriotism, to make them proud of their nation. And this black armband stuff and this emphasis of banging on about the Aborigines makes them ashamed. So what we need to do is we have to find a counter story. And you see, up until that time, much of the idea about where the Australian ethos came from came from the, from, from the, in the union movement and the bush workers. You know, this, this, you know, this is the Russell Ward stuff that many of you will know about. You know, the, 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 the Australian ethos and mateship came from the outback and the bush workers. And then people like me came along and said, God, these bush workers, they also killed the blacks and raped Aborigines. And so that, that made them, that pushed them to one side. And so the, the, the counterstroke was to greatly ramp up and re-energise the whole idea of Anzac and war. And it's been extremely successful. Extremely successful. And I think... I think that makes us far more liable to go to war again. I'm just thinking where, where to go. With, so I've got so much more to talk about here to ask you questions, but I'm kind of aware of the time and I'd like to go to other questions. But I've got uh, one of the things, and it's interesting having talked talk to Ellen before about the power of fiction. I find it curious at the moment that you have a, a ringing endorsement on the front of your book from Kate Grenville, mm, 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 mm. Uh, who has written her trilogy of yep. The Secret mm. River, The mm, mm, First mm. Lieutenant, and mm, mm. suddenly the last one escapes me. But I talked, we had Kate up here mm. in, in Mullaney a couple of years ago, and I was talking to her, and one of the things she talked about was that uh, Inga Clendinen's attack on her mm. for um, appropriating history mm. well and, and I just I was curious obviously that's not one of the uh, one of the the fears that you share about what writers do with it when they when they create novels not at all not at all I mean I, I was a great admirer of her work and I've talked to her you know both in situations like this and privately about this whole uh, this whole imbroglio and my view was that the secret river um, particularly the climactic moment of the, of the killing or the massacre, uh, is the most powerful and, I think, telling uh, account. And I think it is a case of verisimilitude. I mean, she gets it right. I'm sure that's what it was like. Now, I have read probably every account from all over Australia of events like this. To such extent, there are accounts, and there are quite a few. A lot of people wrote in retrospect. But nothing that I can write in history could be as effective as what Kate did. And nor, of course, 
in selling books. I mean, you know, she would sell 20 times more books uh, than, than I can. Uh, and I believe the ABC is making a mini-series of Secret River. So this is going to reach, and it's been translated into many, many languages, this, this is going to reach much farther than any of the books I write about the same subject. So in that way, I think fiction is extremely powerful and important. Yeah. Okay, so look, let's go over to questions from the audience now. Henry, I was just wondering whether you'd have any key observations about the gender aspects of the events that you document. Um, well, it's, it's very difficult to know what women, uh, European women, were thinking about this. There are very, very few uh, letters or uh, diaries. There are some, uh, so that you can put... Uh, women into the story, but uh, so much of the frontier was uh, an all-male frontier. Now, we, also, we know a great deal indeed uh, about the relations between European men and Aboriginal women, uh, and they go across the spectrum from, from rape to negotiated uh, concubinage, concubinage to uh, to uh, casual, uh, you know, but uh, relations that lasted for weeks at a time to long-term relationships. There is a wide spectrum. Uh, and it's very difficult to find Aboriginal voices about this experience. Um, but as I say, it's... It, it's um, it isn't all at the, at the most violent end, although, see, Nick Clements, who is going to be talking tomorrow in his book, dealt with this peculiar situation in Tasmania where the people out in the frontier were young men. Uh, and once again, I mean, people think I pick on the British government, the imperial government, but, I mean, they, they sent to Australia an utterly disproportionate population. You know, where men outnumbered women by, you know, 10 to 1, or, and particularly on the frontier, it was much more than that. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the, the absolute constant points of conflict is about women and about uh, the conflict that, that took place. Sometimes, because the Europeans simply took women and kept them and treated them violently and, and sometimes just killed them, um, but on the other hand, sometimes, uh, you know, there was, a, there was an agreement, there was an, an exchange. And, uh, you know, the, the, the conditions of the exchange weren't met, and so the men got speared. And so then they're, they're the, you know, the, the people who are working with him or, you know, who is his friends, they went out a couple of nights later looking for the Aboriginal camp and shot as many as they could. I mean... So the sexual question is constantly there, but uh, it's, it's not easy to document. Bar Barry is just there. Okay, Ma Michael, yeah. Uh, Henry, in the latest edition of the quarterly essay, Noel Pearson takes you, what I would take as gently to task, for what he calls your Labour-left perspective of politics and Indigenous issues. He, asser he asserts in that essay that you are mute 
on the social crisis of Aboriginal Australia. So my question is, how do you regard Noel's contention that more dispassion and less politics might have better enabled Reynolds to secure a shared history for his fellow Australians? Yes, I, I, I was sent that and I've written a, a, a reply, not, not to his comments about me, but to the overall essay. Well, he sort of blames me for my wife's political career, you see. That's the <laughs> he says, look, you know, she was a Labor senator, so we know what his thoughts were. Now, that, that, was, that was a fair guess, but... Um, um, yes, I have trouble. I mean, I've known Noel... As, <laughs> People all around Australia would say, but what about what Noel Pearson says? And Scott would say, oh, you see, I've known Noel since he was a boy, uh, which is not a, really a put-down. I mean, I'm a great admirer of him, and I've known him for a long time. Uh, and I think, in some ways, his, his trajectory across the political spectrum, from left to right, from the man who negotiated with Keating to the man who now... Uh, tells us in the essay that he dined with Rupert Murdoch and Tony Abbott and... Chris Richardson, um, has, has gone right across the political spectrum. Now, that's all right, many people do that. But what I feel, uh, where I think he went wrong, was that in a sense he blamed the great social problems in Aboriginal society on the left, and as he as he termed it many times, the human rights, you know, the, 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 the human rights agenda. Now, I don't think that's plausible, and I think more than anything else, it helps explain why we can't reach farther now with the referendum that he is promoting. Uh, if you if you don't have a human rights agenda, why offer Aborigines anything? You know, the very at the very heart of what uh, of the whole cause has to be the human rights agenda and an international human rights agenda. Otherwise, you know, why? You know, why not just treat them like everyone else? So, uh, you know, I, I feel about that essay that he, he had, uh, you know, in a sense he came round to thinking that, yes, these are very big issues, but all we can expect is a tiny little result. Now the other thing is, it's, it's uh, utterly unfair, particularly in relation to not so much me but Margaret, saying she wasn't involved. Uh, she was the senator for North Queensland um, and was involved the whole time with Townsville, with Palm Island, with Stuart Prison, the daily social problems that were in our immediate environment and also sort of took these issues up both as a Townsville City Councillor and as a Senator. Um, so to say that we didn't do anything and were mute is, is not particularly fair. Um, but if you, if you grew up where, we, where we, we, we did grow up there, you were aware of this daily. You know, all right, violence, you'd be woken up every second night by screams in the park. You would see the results of people being bashed. I mean, you know, we, we, we lived close to it. So just, you know, to think we weren't aware of this is just fanciful. Perhaps almost a personal question, Henry. Henry, only if you wish to answer, 
Can you share any thoughts or memories on Eddie Marbo and particularly what drove him? Oh, yes. I mean, Eddie, Eddie uh, seems to me to be... Uh, he, he, he should be seen as one of the... Um, one of the leaders of decolonisation movement on a very small scale, but nonetheless very realistically slow. That is, he grew up in Torres Strait where there was very little European presence. They still ran their own affairs very largely. He uh, couldn't understand why it was that the white men had so much power and the islanders didn't. Uh, he wasn't allowed as a young man to come to the mainland when they came ashore, they were put in prison um, before they were allowed onto the mainland. So he came firstly to work on the railway when they were building the Mount Isa line, but he then came and he wanted to try and understand what was the secret of the power of, of Europeans, which is exactly the, 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 the of young, young third world men all over the world at much the same time. And so he, uh, you know, he realised all these problems of, of how you come to terms with this. And he was oppressed by the law. He wasn't allowed to go back to Murray Island for many, many years, not even for the funeral of his father. Um, and it was uh, very much in talking with me that he came to realise that he didn't own his land. It, it was unthinkable. I mean, everyone on, on, on Murray Island knew that was Marbo land. It always had been, and they could trace their genealogies back for generations, and the land was, you know, it was a boundary, it was a, it was a, a, a bounded property, piece of property, he knew. And to, to, to discover th through me that he didn't own that, that it was all crown land, was an absolute startling revelation. And uh, also, he began to think, well, why, why should we be governed by the white men? You know, why can't we govern our own affairs? They're doing that in, over the, over the strait in, in PNG. See, if Eddie had been born on Daru rather than Murray Island, which they're quite close, he would have been one of the leaders of the new nation. But uh, as it happened, he was in Australia and... Uh, his great cause became the, the question of land. Had he lived, he would have almost certainly pushed the question of sovereignty because he said, why can't we at least have you know, self-government? So, uh, yes, I see him as, as I say, a, a, a local variant of, a, of young men all over you know, the Pacific and Africa and... Asia, who, who wanted to find out how it was that they were dominated by white men and throw that domination off. So there's a question. I'll, I'll take one more from over there and then we'll go over to this side of the room, if that's all right. Uh, Henry, uh, I've spent the last two years uh, involved in um, trying to tell the story around the Mile Creek Massacre site. And one thing I'm aware is that uh, it's, there's obviously so many massacre sites that are peppered around uh, just even the Liverpool Plains, let alone New South Wales or Queensland. Um, so bearing in mind that the Mile Creek Massacre site was documented and it was where the white men were actually brought to justice, how do you sort of see the significance in terms of the, the legacy of the massacres around Australia? 
Um, well, Mile Creek, at least, is one where the local people have, have put up a monument um, and where the descendants on both sides of that meet every year. I think that's one of the most important you know, sites in Australia, but um, it's not generally done. Um, well, I think uh, so this is the whole question of, see, what do you do about war and conflict? I mean, one, one answer would be, look, uh, every country should be ashamed of going to war and there should be no celebration, commemoration of war. We should, we should all hang our heads and, and say, you know, war is terrible. But clearly that's not what most societies do. They want to commemorate their fallen. Um, the question arises then, what, what do we do? Well, I think, I think white Australia, if I, you can keep using that term, white Australia has to make its uh, tribute and I think to do that, next to the tomb of the unknown soldier in the war memorial should be the tomb of the unknown warrior. That's our tribute to those who died fighting for their country. Uh, beyond that, I mean, uh, if the war memorial won't do anything, I think indeed there has to be a, 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 you know, a, a, a similar institution in Canberra. But beyond that, I think uh, each Aboriginal community, and now because of land rights largely, there are, uh, most parts of Australia have, have land councils. You know, they, they, there are now uh, corporate bodies all around Australia who can speak for their community. And I think um, they should be asked, do you want to commemorate uh, what happened in your own country? Uh, and, you know, if, if they do, uh, they can choose how it should be done. Uh, it may be, indeed, for all people killed in frontier war, including the settlers and the Aborigines, but that's entirely up to the local people. Just as the local people decided how they were going to memorialise the First World War and the Second World War, as you know. Every small town have got their monuments. Um, and people would say, oh, that would be expensive, but it would be a, a, a piddling amount compared to what we're spending uh, at the moment. And uh, as I say, there might be different answers to that. Some communities say, no, we don't want to remember that, we want to forget it. Others will want to do something. And uh, they should be encouraged to uh, decide what they want to do and, if necessary, then provided with the finance to do it in, in their own country. I think that's the way it should be done. Um, but uh, fundamentally it has to be the decision of each of those local communities how they want to do it. Uh, you know, you may well bring people together to discuss it and to consider what possibilities there are, whether they want you know, a conventional monument, whether they want a statue, whether they want... But I mean, all over the world there are ways in which people are finding inventive and interesting ways to commemorate uh, terrible events in the past. But just as there's every, every town has its monument to the poor young men who were sent over to the other side of the world to die, uh, so there should be a monument for those who died fighting for the land in Australia. This gentleman in the blue shirt here, Danny. Hi, Henry. Um, in um, Nowhere People, uh, I'm paraphrasing, you've got a, a great line towards the end of the book and it's um, uh, empathy is not identity. Um, would you be able to elaborate on that for the audience in terms of changing conceptions of Aboriginality 
yes, or well, reimagined yeah. conceptions of Aboriginality? Yes, well, I think it's more likely than not that, that my grandmother was part Aboriginal. Now, um, my father was bought... I'm pretty sure she bought him to Tasmania because uh, she was, had just got married to his father and they were expecting another child and I think he was brought down to his grandparents and uh, it was never, nothing was ever formally done. He was never formally adopted, but he simply stayed there and grew up in Tasmania, not knowing anything that I, that, that I can tell, because he never, couldn't dare ask him questions about it. Um, and my mother, you know, uh, she spent a lot of time, because she was blind, spent a lot of time when she was old thinking about this, and even she... She d didn't know what he thought about it, and he would never talk about it. But I think his mother was one of those people, and there were no doubt many who passed. That is, uh, as the Americans talk about, they pass. You pass into the white society, and <coughs> you. And uh, we found some other relatives who said the one thing about her: she appeared to come from nowhere. She had no relatives, no memories, no photos, nothing. And it's impossible to, no matter how you research it, to go back beyond her. Um, now, I, I also think that um, facial, you know, appearance is not conclusive. But my father, particularly when he was young, looked very Aboriginal. And if he spent any time in the sun, he went very dark. And so he, for most of his life, he avoided the sun. He wouldn't sit in the sun. So I think that uh, so it's more likely than not that he, uh, you know, his mother was part Aboriginal uh, from New South Wales. Now, this raises the question then, uh, do I then say I'm Aboriginal too? Well, I don't think I can, partly because it's not con absolutely not, not conclusive and probably can never be conclusive. But because he grew up entirely in a European environment and either knew nothing or didn't want to know anything about that bit of his past, and I've grown up uh, in the same way, um, despite that I, you know, have done all of this work, uh, I don't think I can claim to be Aboriginal. I can claim, you know, it, if, if it's true, it's, it's extremely important in that it gives you that sense of being, having far deeper roots in this place than you imagine that go back into the far distance. Um, so, uh, you know, empathy is important, but, but I, I don't think that uh, it's reasonable for me to identify uh, as Aboriginal. <coughs> You know, it uh, could be done, and you know, sometimes some of my relatives, uh, you know, claim it, but I don't. Okay, look, I've got time for one more question. Beth's at the back. Beth Hand, who's a member of the local Gabi Gabi tribe from here. Um, you talked about uh, sovereignty. Yeah. A lot in sovereignty and. Uh, recognising Aboriginal people as being the first in Australia. And um, I just want to say that I do recommend your books when we get new student placements. Um, I do a lot of training 
I'm not a trainer, but I feel like I spend a lot of time training. We can't all write books, we can't all be lecturers, we can't all be politicians, but we can make changes incrementally in our day-to-day -day lives and in our communities. So I'm wondering, in relation to recognising Aboriginal people as being the first people here, how do you feel that before this whole discussion occurred that there wasn't any acknowledgement to the Jinnabara people or the Aboriginal people whose traditional homelands we're meeting on tonight? Uh, well, I, I, of course, think that, that that's most important, but I, I usually don't do that thing of saying I recognise traditional owners. I, I think that's, that's sentimental rather than realistic. It, it's people you know, saying these words that don't really mean much. And this is particularly the case in Tasmania where people were saying, Hobart, we recognise the traditional owners. Now, there are no traditional owners of that part of, of Tasmania, haven't been for 150 years. To say you recognise the traditional owners is simply avoiding, you know, it's a nice way to avoid the, the profound theft of land because people, you say you recognise the traditional owners, but you're not going to hand over your property to them. You know, it's, it's, it's a nice gesture, but it's no more than that. And I, I, I often don't do it for that very reason. Well, I'm the, uh, I'm the person responsible for that because I organise these events. And actually, I concur with Henry on this. I have found that, and I have heard Bev give uh, acknowledgements to country which have been very meaningful, and I salute Bev for what she's done, but... I've also heard that acknowledgement to country time and time and time again when it didn't mean anything. When I've, said, I've had politicians say it over and over and over again, and I feel that I don't want to be doing something that has no meaning. And I've invited Henry Reynolds here to Mullaney to talk about sovereignty and about what happened in Australia and to take very seriously the ownership of this land and our role in it, and the stuff that I read that Jam Kurtzia wrote, which I think is very, very difficult stuff for us to deal with as people living in this society where we have to say, we are the beneficiaries of a great crime. How do we deal with that? How do we live with that? And what do we do about it? And I think that that's what my goal is and in inviting Mr. Reynolds to come here and inviting Ellen to come and talk beforehand. And I think that, that my genuine sense of that is important to acknowledge as well. So look, I just, we are out of time, but I asked you a question about sovereignty before, which I don't know, I mean, you, we talked about a lot of things, but I wanted to just know what you thought that a recognition of sovereignty in Australia would look like. Is it possible? Because obviously, it's ne obviously you believe it to be necessary, but is it possible and what would it look like, just as a final wrap-up? Well, all right, I, I think if the Australian courts say we can't do this, I think you've got to go and get an opinion in the International Court of Justice. And they give opinions on such things. 
and they almost certainly would recognise that the Aborigines were indeed the sovereign nations of Australia, and you'd have to say, look, for most people, the sovereignty was taken by force. They were conquered. Um, but there are many parts of Australia where people still live on their land. There are, you know, large areas, particularly across the north and the centre, where people still live on their traditional land, where the, the, they outnumber any Europeans who are often just transitory, where they still exercise, uh, you know, they still have their, their customary traditions and they still, to a considerable extent, use their own laws, then you have to say these people still have remnant sovereignty. Now, this is done in America. It's been done in America since the early 19th century. That is, the Indians are domestic dependent nations and have sovereignty. And... Uh, you might say, well, does that mean much? Well, it does in some ways, because it means the American Indians don't have to accept state laws. They, they are, have a relationship between the Indian nations and the federal government. That's why they can set up casinos and trade cigarettes and all sorts of things, because they are not subject to state laws. So, you know, there are ways in which this, this has been resolved. Um, in other places and I mean even someone as conservative as Ronald Reagan happily talked about Indian sovereignty in a way that the most progressive Australian would still have trouble with. So of course we can deal with it, of course we can deal with it and maybe there has to be an overarching treaty. I mean the Canadians had treaties they didn't have treaties in British Columbia and they didn't have treaties north of latitude 60. And so they've set up a new treaty-making process. They are negotiating new treaties all over British Columbia and all over the north. And uh, with, with the Inuit people, they've set up a self-governing uh, Inuit state. Of course there are ways to do this. There are ways even within Australia people don't realise. Norfolk Island... Because it's a territory and because it's got a population descended from the Pitkin Islanders, was given autonomy and self-government in the 1960s by the Fraser government and wait for it, they were given their right to govern themselves and have you know, raise their own taxes to have a high degree of autonomy because we wanted to preserve their distinctive way of life. Now that is in Australia, that is in Norfolk Island. Now, there are models already there. There are models for, for other legal systems. In the Cocos Islands, Islamic law still operates, and it operates under the Western Australian legal system. In terms of family and marriage and inheritance, Islamic law exists. So there's much more flexibility in the system than we imagined. Of course we can do a lot. Well, let's hope that we as a nation can do that, and that having someone like you as our major historian is a great step in that direction. I'd like to ask you all to put your hands together for Henry Reynolds. Thank you.